Hey, good to see you guys this morning. Anybody else wake up and go, it's April 2017. Where has time gone? I don't know, for whatever reason, I literally woke up this morning and was just in shock that it's April already, and that time truly does fly by so quickly. And at the same time, I pause and I go, man, a lot of cool things have happened in 2017 already. And if I could give you just even before I dive into the sermon to to continue here in James, just a thought would be this, just pause today at some point and just think about what's taken place in your life in the last three months. Just live that reflective life where you slow down for just a minute and you think, man, Lord, you provided so much. I'm seeing amazing things happen in my marriage or in my kids. I'm experiencing amazing things in my work and transitions and various things. Or maybe, Lord, I really saw your hand in this trial or this moment of suffering or the things that are taking place in my life right now that really hurt. Or maybe, Lord, I really need you in that moment. And I just need to slow down enough that I recognize what's actually taking place in my heart. See, us Americans, for those of you in here that are Americans, are so unbelievably busy. You have, your, your calendars are packed. Many of you live by a color-coded calendar. You've got your work life, you've got your family life, you've got your child-rearing your child life. I think that's how we'd say that. You've got your money life, you've got your entertainment life. You got your, you, you're packed full constantly. How often do you just slow down and take a minute just to take stock of where you're at? And if I were to say something about the book of James, is, is to me, James is drawing us into that place that's saying, are you living present tensely? Like, are you aware of what's happening in your heart and in your life in this very moment? Well, today we take this a little further. We dive into James 1, 13 through 18. Uh, if you're new to New Heights today, I saw we passed out quite a bit of bread, so that's good. Uh, we tend to grab hold of a book and we walk through it, literally passage by passage, verse by verse, breaking it down to really understand what was the author saying in, in the culture and the context of the time frame that it was written, as well as, Lord, what are you teaching us today through this passage that, that matters, that does something in my life, that draws me into a deeper place with you? So we're in the book of James. We're just starting it out. We'll be in it for a while. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. But don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give birth through the word of truth, that we might be the kind of first fruits of all creation. What a powerful and wickedly cool passage to pause and just think about for a minute this morning. We are actually going to be diving into this and, and continuing what Josh started with last week. If you haven't had a chance, we have it posted online. I'd highly encourage you to go back and listen to Josh setting us up in James 1 on our podcast. He, he starts basically his, his uh, presentation of James with these two basic questions. Number one, how do you respond when you face trials, afflictions, and suffering in life? And then number two, 
What does wholehearted devotion to Jesus look like when you're in the midst of those trials? And today's passage pushes us right back into that and continues this theme of going, Jesus, how do I live my life on a daily basis with you in this present tense moment as I face trials, but then also as I'm put into situations by my own accord where I experience great temptation? And so James is setting his audience up to go, hey, we got something to really talk about here, something that matters in this exact moment that you've got to grab hold of. In this passage, James is turning his attention to those who are about to abandon their faith because of the temptations that they're facing. They're literally about to abandon walking in that wholehearted devotion to Jesus because they're going to give their lives over to whatever that temptation might be because that's what feels really good in this moment. That's what will satisfy my soul. That's just where I found myself because I wasn't paying attention to what was happening in my life on a daily basis. See, temptation is going to flow in our lives all the time. So what do I do when that temptation comes? If my life is wholeheartedly sold out to Jesus, I'm developing habits and walking in a certain path in which when that temptation comes, the temptation has no power. But if I'm not walking in wholehearted devotion to Jesus, when that temptation comes, I'm susceptible to choosing that temptation, whatever that temptation might be. And we'll break this down even further. The first part of temptation that James draws us into is this really powerful word called blame. He sets the stage by going, temptation oftentimes is about giving into a sin, but not accepting our responsibility for that sin, but rather blaming the source of the sin. Now, how many of you in here are married? How many of you have ever blamed your spouse for your sin? Anybody? No? Just me, okay? Um, right? I mean, that, that's a very real reality of what many of us begin to understand. James is probably highlighting this because people in his congregation are looking at God the Father and they're blaming him for the temptations that they feel in their lives. It's God's fault. If God hadn't done this, then I would be just fine. Well, see, God's not unfamiliar with blame. Go all the way back to the garden, right? We're, gonna get, we're not even going to get three chapters into Scripture here without seeing blame all over the place. Just remember back to the picture. God creates Adam and Eve and the garden. It's, it's the, the pinnacle of all creation. He, he's done all this, and he wants to create people to have fellowship and to experience relationship with, and he creates humans. He says you can have everything in this garden. Everything is yours to celebrate, to enjoy, except for one, th one thing. Don't eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, isn't this so like us as humans, by the way? We have all of this, but this one little teeny thing over here is what I really want to touch. Come on. It's like when you just say no to that one thing. Son, really don't touch the fire. It's going to hurt, but I want to. It just looks nice. It's going to hurt. That one thing, but that one thing. So here we see Eve. She goes. She eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She says to Adam, holy cow, this stuff is good. Get a little taste of this. He eats some. All of a sudden, their eyes are open, and they realize, whoop, we're naked. They go. They hide in the woods. God comes along, says, hey, Adam, come take your walk with me in the cool of the evening. Why are you hiding because I realized I was naked and I was afraid of you when I was naked. 
Who told you you were? That woman that you put here? She gave me some fruit to eat. And, and because of that, I boom, my eyes were open and I was naked. And I didn't know what to do with it. It's her fault. And then literally you watch the next part of the passage in which God looks at Eve and says, Eve. To which Eve says, it was the serpent. The serpent told me to eat from this tree and that I wouldn't die. You said I would die. Or you told Adam that. I think you told Adam that who told me that, that that we would die. So really, God, both Adam and I are in agreement. We've taken a vote here. That you're the one to blame because you put the tree and the serpent here. And now we're in this predicament. And literally, Scripture opens up with this idea of Adam and Eve blaming God that they've now had their eyes opened, and now they're going to experience life and death. Sin opens us up to experiencing death. And what James is pushing on here is going, our hearts are deceptive. And in our hearts being deceptive, we don't want to take responsibility. It is always somebody else's fault. And if I could grab just one little semi-political thing for just a second. We are a sue-happy culture because it's always somebody else's fault. If I slip in your parking lot, it's your fault. If I eat something and it makes me sick, it's your fault. If you give me advice because I asked for it and then I take that advice and something goes wrong, it's your fault. We live in a culture in which we don't want to own responsibility for either our own decisions or the circumstances of things that happen in our life, and therefore we blame everybody else. And when we live in this constant place of blame, here's what begins to happen. We don't live in a present tense moment of who we are with our Savior in the life that we're living. Blame draws us away from that. James is probably grabbing hold of Proverbs 19.3 in this. A person's own folly leads to their room, yet their heart rages against the Lord. My own folly is what brings about things in my life. But instead of accepting the folly or the temptations that I choose to walk in, I blame the God of the universe that allowed that thing or whatever that is to exist. I love the way one author and commentator states it, Moo states that what can change a trial into a temptation is the attitude with which it is met. And when we fail the trial, we then turn to blame. Whenever we face a trial of some kind, our attitude is what really matters. How we walk into that situation ready, armed, geared up, spirit of life on us, leads to a different outcome than when we walk into that trial and all of a sudden we see the temptation that exists within it to blame a holy and loving God for the fact that we're fighting or dealing with ever that whatever that trial might be. There's several different things that exist when we begin to break apart the idea of test God testing his people or God tempting his people. See God does not tempt people. God tests people. And there's a very huge difference that exists in the way these words break apart. This is actually Rembrandt's very famous painting right here, if anybody likes art or likes Rembrandt, of uh, the picture of Abraham being sent to sacrifice Isaac. This wasn't God tempting Abraham. This was God offering an opportunity for his, test, for his faith to be tested. See, when we look at God testing people, what God is oftentimes doing is he's, he's drawing them into a situation to go, I want your faith to be refined 
all the more. I want you to discover greater devotion. I want you to discover greater uh, experiences in life with me. I want to test that in you so when you're drawn into that place, you're strengthened, your journey, your story, your movement with me gets more and more uh, powerful and more solidified in your life. But it's not a temptation saying, hey, I just want to see if you can sin. God doesn't sit up in heaven and create obstacles in our life just to see if we can sin. All throughout scripture, we see examples of trials and God placing trials in people's lives, not God placing temptations in people's lives. Massive difference here. We see it in Adam and Eve in the garden with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as I just stated. We see it with Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It was a trial, not a temptation. We see God leaving Israel surrounded by pagan nations all throughout the books of Judges. We see Job suffering in his life. We even see Jesus in the desert with Satan. These are not instances in which God is tempting man, tempting us into a place of sin. But rather, these are examples of God going, here's your life in present tense trajectory. What are you going to do whenever this trial or this pressure or this situation comes your way? Are you going to maintain your life and your trajectory and your closeness to me? Or are you going to find yourself drifting away? Because all I want as the God of the universe is for you to call on my name and enter into deep relationship with me and I'll meet whatever it is that you need in this exact moment in order to survive this trial that you're facing. But it's not about God tempting you away. It's about God drawing you into a place in which you have an opportunity, and that's a good word to grab hold of, an opportunity to grow. I love the movie Evan Almighty. Anybody seen the movie Evan Almighty? Steve Carell. I mean, you guys gotta love the guy. He's hilarious. This is a great movie, and it's, it's a good opportunity to really begin to understand how this broke down. I remember the first time I watched this movie in the scene in which Evan Almighty's wife has a conversation with God, played by Morgan Freeman, of course, because that's what God would be like, um, to, to really grasp what this looks like. And in this particular scene, God is speaking to her as she's in a place of discouragement. She's frustrated. And she's like, well, God, I have prayed for something different to happen, and it didn't happen. And I love the way the character of God responds in this and goes, think about this for a minute. If you pray for patience, does God just automatically give you patience? Or does he give you an opportunity to be patient? If you pray for courage, does God automatically give you courage to where you just experience courage all of a sudden? Or does he give you an opportunity to be courageous? And I love this dialogue that takes place here because I, I, it really, it, gosh, heaven almighty shaped my theology. You know, it, it draws me into this place of going, man, that's right, Lord. Like, when I ask you for something, you don't just zap it down upon me. You give me opportunity in my life to cultivate that. Lord, I want to learn to be more loving. Does all of a sudden I just feel the Twitter pate feelings of loving? Or does God put people in my life that really challenge me to love deeply and authentically? See, God gives us trials, not temptations. He gives us opportunities to grow and to experience things that ultimately make us more like him. 
And James is pushing us into this place. See, the verse itself emphasizes that God cannot be tempted because God himself can never be associated with sin. God cannot be associated with sin. So therefore, God cannot create situations in our life that draw us into a place of sin. God didn't have anything to do with sin. He has everything to do with relationship and everything to do with drawing us into a trajectory with him. James goes on to state that temptation is truly about our heart. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires, our own evil desires. I love this idea that James is building most likely on a Jewish word here of yetzer. Yetzer is the idea that every human being has these two opposing forces in themselves, a drawing towards something that is good and pure and perfect, and a drawing towards something that is hurtful, that is sinful, and that is dark. Yetzer. And James is speaking to a congregation that would have had many philosophical debates about this, about humankind. How are we? Do, are we naturally bent towards sin or are we naturally bent towards love and towards good things? And James is saying, look, these two opposing forces inside of you, you have to recognize that they fight and they battle. And really, there's not a theology or a philosophy, or let me even go this far, a movie in today's culture that does not demonstrate good versus evil and the human propensity towards one or the other. The word dragged is best translated as the word lured. Lured would have been from a fishing metaphor, which would have been really appropriate for this particular congregation. Their entire lives revolved around fishing. When I looked up lure in the dictionary, it literally is defined as this, an artificial fishing bait. Artificial fishing bait. It's intended to hook a fish so that it can be caught, and most likely it can be eaten or consumed. But I really appreciated the idea that it's something that's artificial. I mean, for one, look at that. Does that look real in any way whatsoever? I even found one that said Amazon on it. I probably should have put that one up here for most of you. It's an artificial, it creates a false feeling. It's a lie, it's fake, it's not real. A lure in temptation is something that gives the appearance of being real and satisfying, but in the end is empty, void, and fake. What lures us away from God oftentimes leads us into a place where we experience something that isn't real, something that God never intended for us to have. So I paused and I thought about this, and in my life, um, I've had many experiences fishing, but some of my favorite actually didn't involve fish themselves, it involved crabs. When I lived in Alaska, we literally would set our own crab pots out in the Bay Area and catch our own Dungeness crab. It was an amazing thing. We never put fake uh, bait inside the crab pots, though. You know what we put in there? Dead fish. But the same metaphor applies here. It's something that was dead, something that has life, seeks out something that was dead, ultimately leads to its own death. Because it ended up in my pot and then in my belly. That's a reality. Sin lures us. Temptation lures us away. And as James points out here, ultimately it leads to death. Everyone has a propensity towards sin. Oftentimes we have a propensity towards a specific sin. And it's predictable. Most likely I could look at everyone in here and say, hmm, Do you know what your propensity towards sin is? Do you know what that very specific sin in your life is? 
As a matter of fact, let's do this. Some of you have pens out. Some of you have phones out. I want you to write it down. You can kind of do that first grade thing where you hide it from your neighbor. You know? <laughs> but for real, take just a second and ask the Lord this. Lord, what is my propensity? What is, what is the sin that most often lures me away, that snares my heart, that gets me every time? What's your sin? Oftentimes I hear people say things like selfishness, lust, greed, fill in the blank. So I challenge you to do something a little bit further. Whatever the sin is, the, probably the global word you wrote down there, get even more specific. What actually is the temptation that leads you into that sin? So here's a good example of this. Let's take lust for a minute. If somebody has a propensity towards the sin of lust, most likely the temptation that they fight on a consistent basis is that of pornography. This last week, every, every year, I get, uh, I'd call it a great opportunity, I get to go speak to all the uh, newlyweds and the recently engaged individuals in New Heights, um, whether they're from here or they're from uh, New Heights down in Fayetteville, and they have a class, and we get together, and I get to come in, and I get to talk about what is sexuality going to look like in your marriages. And in that, I get this opportunity to talk for just a minute about what is porn doing, pornography doing in marriages today. And so I was looking up some of the most recent statistics about it. I haven't been teaching on sexuality as much as I used to. And it shocked me to find out that several of the websites that are hit on within pornography are in the top seven hit on websites of all time. And not only that, but that every single day on one of those websites alone, which I'll remain unnamed at this moment, 75 million hits a day. Just click, 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 click. And I stopped and I thought to myself, is, is it, lust is a sin, but really the temptation is pornography. And it draws somebody in. And by the way, we could go back to that blaming thing pretty quickly here. Well, if the internet wasn't so accessible, I would never end up there. Somebody else's fault for making it so accessible. Or maybe what if you're tempted by greed? Because I, I could pause for this one. I'll, I'll, I'll be really vulnerable and honest. You know what it is right now? It's tax season. Anybody have to turn in their taxes? Anybody own their own business or their own LLC? You know what Satan's really good at doing in that moment is going, you know, you could fudge these numbers just a little bit. You could keep a little bit more of this money for yourself because does the government, are they really responsible with the money that you give them? What about that one? Greed could be my temptation or the sin that I fall into and the temptation that gets me there is my taxes. And wanting to keep more for myself, which ultimately leads to selfishness. I could blame everybody under the sun for how I ended up in that place. See, the reality here, James is drawing us into this place and going, your sin, the temptation of your, of your life is about your heart. It's about you. When I spoke to these young married couples, I said, if, if you find out that your spouse is looking at pornography and it, it is deeply devastating to you, your first line of, of what you should do is not make it about you. You should ask them, what's going on in your heart, honey, that led you into a place where you felt like pornography would satisfy you? Because that ultimately is the sin that's taking place. It's not about me. 
We make things about us, but in reality, it's not. It's about your heart. When you take whatever it is that you wrote down there, if you even did the exercise, I watched some of you like, oh, heck no, I ain't doing that. But (laughs) if you take and you really examine that thing, what is it saying about your heart with the Lord? Get in the present tense moment where we started today and go, Lord, I want to see this because ultimately I don't want to die. I don't want to have all the things that come as a result of walking into this. It's about your heart with God. After desire has conceived itself, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full born, gives birth to death. Our desires of our life, the temptations, are either fed or starved. Either fed or starved. There's no halfway here. Did you eat dinner last night? Yes or no. There's no like halfway kind of thing, which I think a lot of us try to do. Well, kind of. Well, did you eat? Yes or no? Kind of ate. Does a tropical smoothie count? There's no, there's no halfway with sin or temptation. You did or you didn't walk into that. Ecclesiastes 9.12 Moreover, no one knows when the hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, birds are taken into a snare. So people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. See, James is really creating a situation in which he wants us to see that our temptations, our sin, snares us. It pulls us away. And when it does this, it ultimately leads us into a place of death. Blomberg, who was a professor of New Testament theology at Denver Seminary, I had him as a professor. He was super tall, super lanky. He walked a little bit like this everywhere that he went, like he just exuded scholar. But he was utterly brilliant. And here's the thing that amazed me most. Before the very first day of class, he knew every student's name. Before he'd ever met you. He would go around the class and he would tell you who you were by name. He was brilliant. And I love studying under him because he challenged me on a consistent basis to really understand what was Scripture teaching me about who I was in the Lord. No matter what theology we got off on, no matter what issue we studied or debated or fill in the blank, everything he taught went back to who you were in the Lord. And one of the things he broke apart is he described the progression of sin like this. Stage one, a sin is suggested to you. Stage two, You experiment with it. In stage three, you give your consent or you ultimately surrender to it. It's progressive. And what I love about this is the idea that you can sin in your life is really quite predictable. You can literally see it coming like a freight train. But the question is, what are you going to do with that? It's not a trial. It's a temptation. And temptations are predictable. If you wrote down what you knew your propensity was towards, what are you doing to fend it off? If, you're, if your propensity is towards pornography, what are you doing with an, a web browser on your smartphone that's unprotected or unseen by others? In other words, if, if you know the temptation of your heart, what will draw you away, what are you doing? Sin is progressive. And ultimately, when left unchecked, it draws us into a place of death. A man that, uh, I, I don't know if I'd call him a mentor, but somebody that was deeply influential in my faith after I met the Lord in high school was a pastor of a a very large church. His name appeared on the list uh, that came out about Ashley Madison. And he got up in front of this congregation, and he gave the same description that many pastors throughout our nation gave, which was this. 
I promise I was not on that website in order to try and attract other people to have sex with. I got on there because during a counseling session with somebody I was ministering to, they talked about this website. I went on there. I signed up in order to fully understand what they were looking at. That's the truth. That's my heart. Believe it or not. That's what he shared. Everybody loved on him, gave tons of grace, tons of understanding. Why? What would he have to lie? He's caught. He could just own it right now, and we could all work through it. But that was what he said. A few months ago, I found out that he... uh, was recently relieved from the church because he'd been having a long-standing affair with his assistant for 10 years. And why do I bring that up at this particular moment is, is sin is progressive. And even in the opportunity to confess sin and to break apart and to own the lust of his heart, he didn't do it. And eventually, it got him. See, we might get away with sin for small periods of time, but eventually our sin is full-born. And ultimately, as scripture teaches us time and time again, our sin will lead us to death. It's progressive. One author states that really when we are looking at sin, we should call it selfish ambition. The temptation is best translated as this idea of selfish ambition. And when we enter into it, it ultimately leads us to death. See, James is referencing this concept of birth leading to maturity, as Paul had done as well throughout Scripture. He wants his audience to see that sin over time is really just choice after choice, day after day, year after year. As we make decisions, ultimately we walk down this road that leads us into a place where our heart is ultimately experiencing death. In other words, your sin is not represented by a singular decision that you've made. I think us as humans, it's easy to judge somebody based on one decision that they made. You are a murderer, therefore you are a sinner. You are a homosexual, you made one choice, therefore you are a sinner. We tend to look at it in these silos or these isolated things, but really what what James and Paul both are pointing out time and time again is that, that our sin is the totality of all these decisions that we make over and over again, and oftentimes they start in these really little increments. And what's really comfortable for a lot of us in here is we didn't have to write anything down when I asked us to write something down because we got to go, well, you know, I'm really not that bad. I'm not like that guy over there because I know about their sin. And it almost creates this deceptive judgmentalism inside of us that goes, my sin's not that bad. I mean, let's be really honest for a moment. How many of you, in all honesty, as I'm talking about this, would go, Nick, I I honestly, some of my sins I could kind of justify to some degree. Anybody? Yelling at your children, being bitter towards your spouse who withheld sex from you, fill in the blank. Anybody? Ever justify a sin in your life? That's a reality of what we do as humans. It's easy to blame and push that off and not have to own our stuff. And James is calling us out on that and going, get in this present tense moment and be aware of your propensity towards something because ultimately if you don't, it will steal you from the Lord. It will draw you into death and your ability to be wholeheartedly devoted to God is gone. That should scare the bejesus out of us. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This verse is a counter-argument to the previous verses. 
If God does not give us temptation, if he allows trial, if he doesn't give us temptation, then what does he give us? The verse starts with a stern warning to us. James is drawing us back into this place of going, don't be deceived. If you read the previous two verses about leading uh, us to death, and you walk away and you go, I'm good, I've got nothing, then God's going, hey, your pride's probably got a hold of you right now. Don't be deceived. James is most likely referencing Jeremiah 17.9 here, which the idea is that the heart can be deceitful. Above all things, our heart is deceitful. Why? Because we have a sin nature in us. This propensity that draws us into this place. And we need to stop and take stock of it on a consistent basis. So in this verse, God is answering the question of saying, if I'm not going to give you temptation, and I don't want you to walk in a life in which you're deceived, what am I going to give you? I'm going to give you every good and perfect gift. And what is the every good and perfect gift that God is going to give you? It's this. It's anything that breeds life in your life. It's anything that breeds life in your life. And most likely here, what, what James is talking about is he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's referencing back to what Jesus said in, in Luke and in Matthew, that although I go on, I leave behind the Holy Spirit who comes on to continue this work. In that good, in that perfect gift here that's coming down, the, the, literally the present tense of the word coming down used here, means that it's continual. It continues to flow and move in your life. But the one thing that's required of you is that you recognize it. That you see it, that you grab hold of it, and when you grab hold of it, all of a sudden it begins to rule in your life. And decision after decision, experience after experience, all of a sudden I begin to live in a place in which I'm experiencing the light consistently. I'm experiencing the Holy Spirit consistently. I think about even Josh bringing up our team and, and having a testimony about prayer. When we, when we live in a place in which we truly believe that prayer matters, we see amazing things. We see the Lord move in that. But if you're skeptical of prayer, you know what you're not going to see? The Lord move in prayer. But when we live in that place of the light, all of a sudden things begin to look different. But in order to do that, back to this, you got to get in the present tense. The author here, James, is most likely also battling a present tense culture reality of what they're experiencing, which is this. They're starting to look at the stars for the answers. Astrology, that's going to lead us to truth. It's going to tell us about the future. Does anybody have a friend or a coworker that's really into astrology? Man, they really draw some, some interesting conclusions from the stars when you stop and you think about it. And what James is doing is he's going, those lights up there, the stars, the sun, the moon, they look like they give you life, but they don't. They were given to you by the Father of lights. Get all the way back to the core. Where does that beauty come from? Where does that movement come from? Where does that power come from? It comes from a loving and amazing God who created it. And ultimately in that, he created you. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of all creation. And what is it that he highlights in this first fruit of all creation? It's you. Amazing, wonderfully made you, that the God of the universe every single day looks at and says, I want relationship 
with you. Go all the way back to the garden. God created Adam and Eve, not because he had to have man in order to be fulfilled, but because he wanted to. He wanted relationship. Why should we challenge each other to stay in the word or to pray every single day? Not because you got to have your 15 minutes a day in order to get into heaven and check that box, but because the God of the universe wants relationship with you. Your quiet time is about connecting with your Savior. Yesterday, I literally spent about five hours on a riding mower, not necessarily because I had to, but because when I'm sitting there and all I hear is the hum of that mower, pretty soon the hum of that mower goes away and all I find myself wanting to do is cry out to my Savior and repent for the fact that Lord has been too long since you and I sat together. That I just sat here and let my heart slow down, turn off my, my music or my podcast, turn out all the world, stop trying to figure out things in my marriage or raising beautiful children, and just let me sit with you. And I want to hear you. And I want to be in relationship with you. And I don't want the sins or the temptations of my life to pull away. And, and let me be really honest. For just a glimpse, I got it. That just finite moment when you feel the God of the universe just sitting right there with you. But the reality is Nick woke up this morning and got back to work and busy in my head and we got a big conference this week and I'm already focused on that and we got children and we got finance and, we got, and all these things are immediately pulling me back into this, the temptation of just getting through life. But I want to stop long enough day after day, moment after moment, to just live and recognize that God chose to give me life. Why? Because he wants a relationship with me. And I want it with him. This concept of the word of truth in this passage, what is it referencing? The word of truth is the gospel. Some commentators disagree on this. They debate about it, but most will come all the way around and go, there's, there's too much support for the idea that James is saying, look, what matters is you, and what really matters is that the God of the universe died on a cross in order to redeem your life. And basically, this passage used the same words as four other passages and four other occurrences throughout Scripture, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Ephesians 1, 13, and that one I'll pause on here in just a second. Colossians 1.5 and 2 Timothy 2.15. If we look at the Ephesians 1.13, and you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him. A seal and a promise was given unto you, and that promise was the Holy Spirit. When you choose life in this present tense, when you embrace God, he fills you with the Holy Spirit, and in that you live. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted anymore. It doesn't mean that, 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 that you won't miss it and you won't fall into sin, but what it does mean is, get this, you won't die because of your sin. Because a God said, I'm not going to let you die in your sin. I'm going to redeem you. You just got to turn back to me. You just got to look at me and let that Holy Spirit that's in you draw you back to where you have that just moment of experiencing me on a consistent basis. See, the previous verses all build to this pinnacle moment in James. God does not tempt us. Submitting to sin does not lead to death. God is the father of lights. He's the creator. You are his ultimate creation. And in that, God will save you from yourself, from the sin that entangles you, 
So what's our application today? First is this. Temptation is real. Whatever your thing is, let me give you another challenge. Own it and share it with somebody. Come up to our prayer team today and go, you know what, I've not really dealt with this thing. I keep thinking I've got a handle on it and I can deal with it, but the reality is that it's slowly stealing my heart. And I don't want to let it. So let me confess it. Some of you know I have this like strong little bent inside of me to Catholicism. Why is that? One of the things I really love about it is confession. Why do we stop confession? Now, do I think we need to go sit in a little booth with somebody that we can't really see that's there? No. But I think we should practice it with one another. Practice it with our significant others, with our spouses, with our children, with our dearest friends. Confess our sins. And you know what's amazing is when you start confessing your sin, that sin loses all, all of its power. But it's predictable. How many of you know that you've tried to hide sin before and it just got worse? Anybody? Has that happened to anybody in here? Anything that happened in anybody's life right now? Raise your hand. Just kidding. <laughs> You're like, hey, raising my hand anyway. It's predictable. James is challenging us with this. Second thing, why doesn't God protect us from trials and tribulations and temptations that come our way? Why does God allow this pain or this hurt or this suffering? And ultimately the answer, well, it's really hard to swallow and it feels a little bit trite is God wants you to grow in your journey with him. He wants you to become dependent upon him. He wants you to long for those little moments when you just feel him. And it's real. It's real. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And you know what that way out time and time again in Scripture is? It's him. He provides the Holy Spirit. He provides the refuge. He provides a place where you can come and literally curl up in his lap and go, I missed it, Lord, but I need you. Overwhelm me with your spirit. And he just literally says, how I love you, my child, I love you. How I love you, my child, I love you. You're mine. And the last thing is, live a wholehearted devotion to Jesus' lifestyle. And that is a choice in the present tense, every moment of our lives, when we just say, Lord, it's about you in this moment. Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, temptation is coming my way. I'm not going to blame you for giving me this wife or this child or this job or this situation. And instead, I'm going to say, Lord, what do I do in this moment when my heart is being pulled into a place that can ultimately lead me to death? When I start believing that I deserve better, I deserve more, protect me, Lord. Let me be sold out for who I am in you. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus is what allows us to experience present tense moments in this life with him. Today, as we wrap up here, we're going to do some worship. We got communion on the sides. Here at New Heights, we love it if you don't do communion by yourself. Do it with your significant other that you came with. Do it with a friend. Do it with somebody on the prayer team. Grab Josh or myself 
And when you break off into communion, here's my challenge to you. Literally, Scripture challenges us before communion to confess our sins, to make sure we've laid it all down. Confess at this moment, if you are holding on to sin that can ultimately lead to death, confess it. And may we be the kind of church that will receive that, that will pray over each other, that will love on one another in that darkness. Because we don't want anybody to die. Why do we go around sharing the gospel? Because we want people to live. We don't want people to die in death. So take communion together. And the other thing is our prayer team is truly here. Let them bathe you in prayer as you seek the Lord of the universe. Lord God, join us today as we break off into communion. Remind us constantly of what James is stating in this passage, that this life is about you and about how we ultimately experience you in these present tense moments. Lord, may our sin and our temptation not get the best of us. May we rely on the Holy Spirit. And Lord, for the people that wrote things down, that they actually looked at and examined their sin, I pray you break it from their lives, that you bring freedom into those places, that the next time they're asked a question about a temptation, it's something different because you've created freedom by confessing it, by owning it, and by not allowing it to rule in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus.